This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Good morning, good morning, good morning, or good afternoon, depending on where you're at. And Daniel, how are you doing this morning? Good morning. Hey, I'm here, man. I'm here. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, a little traveling around today. Had a nice bagel for breakfast. We're doing good. But you know what we're talking about today? We're talking about the incident structures and, and why we need to, to rethink them. We're going to bring on uh, Tim Riker. And he writes, after examining these models, I think it's uh, most will agree that the incident management that we really use is a team of teams model but not to its full extent. And why is that? He says, I think primarily because geographical uh, side of our, our organizations using command models, so much of the mindset is fixated on structure, perceived rigidity. Um, Tim, why don't you come on, on, come on in and let's talk about that statement. Hey guys. Hey, good morning, Tim. Tim Riker, you've got a great experience. You wrote that specifically talking about the 50 year anniversary of, of Firescope. I guess you know, <clears throat> makes me feel super old. And uh, <laughs> thank you for that, by the way, that feeling. But yeah, what's, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? We need to re-examine these models. And, you know, despite the geographic origins, organizations using command model that were fixated on the structure and not really what it did. Well, I, I often tell people that incident management is a team sport. And we have to understand how teams work, how they do things. Um, and a lot of actually the, the article that you referenced um, was inspired. Uh, I was inspired by the book Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal. Um, not a paid endorsement. I just thought it was a really great book. It was really meaningful. It was really relevant. Uh, well, obviously, a lot of that was focused on uh, military implementation. But because now he's a consultant and they're doing corporate stuff. But obviously, you know, when I read something like that, and I think you guys do too, you're trying to see, you know, hey, what are what are the the applications of something like incident management that we do? And and you know, there were some really good examples that he used in the book. One of them was simply the concept of, um, you know, you you can look at a sporting team, you can look at a a soccer team or a football team or something like that. And yes, while you have maybe some measure of a hierarchy here and there, you know, you've, you've, you've got a team captain, you've got a coach that's off the pitch, whatever. The rest of the team is, is interacting and communicating with each other very well. And certainly we do that in, in, in ICS, but that hierarchical structure that we usually see, I mean, you walk into any EOC or any command post somewhere. And typically the first thing you see on the wall, it like poster size is, that org chart because people are very very proud of that org chart and for some reason they think that org chart is the most important thing in the world um we're really i mean if we really want to dig into the the ics nerdiness the ics 203 is actually way more important than the org chart um and to an extent it kind of shows it differently and yes people can take a look at that org chart and say ah okay this person is in charge and here's the person who's uh, you know, leading this section. Here's the person who's in charge of this and whatnot. But I think that 
a lot of perspectives uh, get lead us to like stovepiping. And a lot of that will even start with, with training uh, in, in ICS. And you guys know that's a ICS training is a completely different vein for me uh, to, to talk about. And necessarily when we train, we break things down. And when we break things down, we tend to often silo them, which is terrific. Uh, but then in actual practice, the issue is, is that it's not just the operation section working with the folks in the operation section or planning, working within planning. We're all working together. And yes, well, the, the, the hierarchical structure that we see of that org chart shows those lines of authority and those lines of command. It really ignores a lot of the coordination and communication that has to take place. Mm -hmm. And I think that in some ways that's an obstacle to us. Um, and there's departmental operation centers. Maybe then there's a state EOC that's involved. And so you have a lot of communication, coordination types of elements going on there. And you can draw lines all over the place. And it, and it does viably look like a rat's nest. But we're simply not acknowledging that when we draw this very nice, neat, orderly org chart. And so I, I think we're just kind of fooling ourselves. You know, it serves yeah. a purpose, but it doesn't really reflect reality. No, I, I agree with you there. And, you know, one of the things just kind of odd, uh, this uh, on Tuesday night, I was lecturing a class. We're talking about the uh, traditional model versus the professional model of emergency management. And and then, you know, Dan was just talking yesterday about the idea of moving on EM student, uh, of moving more into the professional model of, of what emergency management really is. And in, in the ICS incident management team structure, are we really are we really utilizing the, the key elements of the professional model of emergency management? Or are we still stuck in that traditional top-down command structure, you know, master and commander, if you will? I think in a lot of ways, we are very much stuck in it, um, in, in kind of the old way of, of doing things. We need to recognize that there are leaders at all levels. You know, we, we want leadership at all levels. It's not just the incident commander. We obviously want our section chiefs to be leaders. We want unit leaders to be leaders, branch directors, group supervisors, et cetera, et cetera, whatever titles we give them. But even the people who don't necessarily hold those titles, we want to see examples of, of, of leadership and, and leadership, you know, simply, obviously that can get broken down, you know, into a lot of uh, rather finite things in terms of taking initiative and being someone who, who can inspire others and communicate clearly and all that kind of stuff those aspects of leadership are something that you want to see throughout an entire organization. Uh, and obviously people are going to grow and evolve with that. But I think in a lot of ways, um, a lot of what we see in, in emergency management, and it's a frustration that I kind of regularly have. And, and uh, for people who read my blog, you know, I've kind of taken on this, this moniker of the, the contrarian emergency manager, because I, I have this frustration of, uh, us just kind of being stuck. Um, there are very, certainly very much some forward-looking people, some very progressive people in emergency management. So I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not casting a blanket over the entire practice, but we do have a lot of people who are still, um, you know, fighting yesterday's disaster, uh, you know, common military term where they say, hey, we're fighting, you know, the last war. Well, you know, a lot of people are still fighting the last disaster. We're not thinking of new and innovative ways to do things. Um, a lot of people are, are espousing, well, if it's, if it's not broken, you know, don't fix it. And I think, well, okay, if it's not broken, that means it works and that's great, but maybe there's something that can work better. 
And so I really think we need to start examining things and, and looking at opportunities to improve and what can work better for us. Well, I, and I agree. I agree with what you're saying there. And uh, ultimately, my question would be, how do we get unstuck? I mean, when, when it comes to when it comes to ICS and when it comes to incident, when it comes to, you know, these, you know, incident trainings and um, the lack of, I should say, training when it comes to ICS and EOC training, you know, Mercy Operations Center uh, training is that a lot of it is they don't get to use it every day. So when they get yeah. to when they come in and get to use it, it's it's some of it can be on the spot training. You know, you're in, you know, training in the in the midst of a, a, an incident that is growing uh, or expanding uh, in, at a level that uh, requires that level of ramping up. And um, I try and relate, you know, ICS as, as 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 basketball. I mean, you can play it with one. You can play by yourself and shoot baskets. You can play one on one. You can go to two, two, you know, two on two and three, and it can keep growing. The, team, the game can keep growing. And then sure. you got the bystanders, and you got you know so. Ultimately, though, how do we how do we get unstuck in a system that really is use it or lose it? You know, I mean, it's a system that can, if you don't do it, then you're like, well, how do you do this? What's a what's a strike team? What's the task force? What's the, mm -hmm. And it can get so big that you're not doing it all the time. So how do we get unstuck in the in the way we think about the way we do things right now? Well, I, I think especially in terms of, of incident management, um, preparedness starts fundamentally with planning. And I, I think that, you know, we need to definitely evolve. And again, some people have, but a lot of people haven't. We've all read plans that will have in their one paragraph in a plan that acknowledges, hey, HSPD five NIMS, we're going to do this, blah, blah, blah. And they move on. And there's nothing else in the plan that even acknowledges ICS um, as kind of their, their way of, of doing things. And so that certainly doesn't do us any favors. The other aspect of this is a, uh, a, a lack of socializing plans. Um, the people in many cases who need to know that the plan exists either don't um, or they're not reminded of it because it was an email that they got three days ago, they filed or three years ago, they filed it away, whatever, or someone stopped by their office, handed them a binder and it's on the shelf. Uh, Dan's got a lot of stuff on his shelf. There's probably some emergency <laughs> plan up there that's been there for like years that he has no idea what it even is. Um, probably even because someone slipped it in there on them, you know? And so there's, there's a lot of that. So I, I think we need to uh, socialize these plans to people. And, and so what does that mean? That means uh, briefing people on it at, at the, you know, bare minimum, Hey, here's a new plan. Here's what it's about. But then taking it the next step and actually training people, making sure, I mean, that's the real root of what we should be doing in training is training people how to do their jobs and dealt with, as I'm sure you guys have, a ton of jurisdictions who say, oh yeah, we're, we're ready, we're, we're, we're good, we're prepared for anything, we have our ICS training. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> so that tells you how to organize, but how do you know what's in your plan? And how many people at a, a leadership level have familiarity with what your jurisdiction's emergency operations plan is and what their roles and responsibilities are? And the number of hands that are in that room will very, very quickly go down. So we need to we need to train people in, in what their roles are, uh, get them familiarized in it and not just do it once. Because, again, the plan was written three years ago. People who got it then, that's great. People had then forgotten it. People left. People new people were hired, et cetera. So we need to kind of continue with some kind of refresher training with that. 
Um, yeah, it can get a little tedious. I, I completely understand. The emergency operations plans are not the most exciting thing to read out there. Um, but it's 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 a necessity. It's what we have to do. So we we get training. And of course, there's ways to make training really good and impactful and meaningful and, and, and interesting. But then on top of that, we also then go to exercises. Um, exercises are not just to test plans. That's something that we have seen in, in so much exercise doctrine for decades that says, the purpose of exercises is to validate plans. Yes, it absolutely is. That's 100% right. But there's another purpose. And that other purpose is for people to actually practice the stuff that they would be doing during a disaster, uh, whether it's talking about it or it's actually, you know, hands on doing it, uh, depending on what the exercise is. So doing that in, in frequency to make sure that people are familiar with these things um, is, is really important. That's that, that that's an important aspect of it. Uh, and, and I think that is going to help address the issue that you brought up, Dan, of, you know, that user to lose it thing. If, if it's constantly reinforced to people um, and they're really, truly shown ways how to use it, which I think is then that's where we get into this this issue that I have with how ICS training currently is, uh, because it's terrible. It tells us about ICS, but it doesn't tell us how to use ICS. <laughs> And there's some arguments that people will have saying, well, if people want to learn how to use ICS, then they should take position specific training for an IMT. Well, a lot of people don't have that time. A lot of departments don't have those budgets. Um, it's, it's, I, I, I think, you know, while IMTs are good, IMTs are really great. They're a fantastic resource. Not everyone can be on an IMT. Um, and that training is not, you know, is openly available to a lot of people. So I think we need to look at something that's in the interim that's that's going to help support that as well. You know, Kelly McKinney and I were talking um, about planning plans and operationalized plans, and uh, <clears throat> that's one of the things that we don't do is is really make a part of our our daily life uh, as emergency management, but part of our daily life as as part of the organization. And I remember there was a we had an incident one time and. They asked the uh, operations uh, section chief and said, hey, what's the plan say? And he goes, I don't have time to read the plan. Great. Yeah. And we're just going to just push that thing out. The, it's going to wing it anyway. So, yeah. you, you know, the, there's there's that part of it too that people see us write these plans. Uh, maybe they practice her every once in a while, but they never operationalize them. And, and on the day, on, on game day, they don't even look at them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's Yeah. There's, there's so many issues with that failure to use plans. And some of it is because they don't know. Some of it is because uh, the, the plan might actually be either bad or simply not written to the extent that it needs to. Some plans that I've seen are written to such a high level that it's practically meaningless. I mean, it basically, you know, hey, here's our policy. Um, it's, it's almost written to that level. It's a, you know, 30 or 40 page policy document. It's not something, as you said, Todd, that is implementation ready. They, they, they can't actually use it in the field. It's meaningless to them. Right. Um, and, and, and certainly it's a, it's a tough line to walk because if we get too detailed, um, we, we can be prone to, uh, what I call planning ourselves into a corner, which is basically, we had these planning assumptions. We built a really detailed plan on how to address whatever the topic is. But in reality, the circumstances were very different. And so it just didn't work out for us. You know, we have to completely make something up. Um, and I think improvisation is 
a valuable tool in incident management because no plan goes or no disaster goes according to, to the plan that we have. But that doesn't mean that the plans are bad. They're a, a well-written plan, at least, is still going to help guide us and, and, and give us those, those benchmarks. Um, the, other, the other bad part about planning, though, necessarily, though, is that we tend to do them in a vacuum, right? They hire the emergency manager, they put them in a the corner, say, okay, write the plan, and it, there's really no process. And, right. and so one of the things that I really stress is the planning process isn't just some dude typing on a, a keyboard. It's yeah. really bringing everybody in, getting their feedback, looking at what they're doing, getting their take on their, their particular section, and working through it. Because um, at the end of the day, it is the process, I think, that makes a, a bigger stress. Uh, I want to talk about one of the comments here. Dr. Bonnet says, a train, a training is much more than a class. It's practice and practice so you can see the level of knowledge and skills and of abilities. And I actually agree with that. Um, you know, there's a difference between knowledge, training, and then putting that and operationalizing that training mm -hmm. into practice, you know. And Craig Fugate really does a great job with this part. He says that um, the, the emergency manager is like the football coach, right, where we write the plans, we put them on the training field, we go through them, walk people through the, through the process, and then on game day, we are off the pitch. We're off. We're on the sideline, um, mm -hmm. giving information uh, as needed, uh, and really helping people go down the field. But uh, we're not on the field playing. So I think that's that's uh, right there. That, that's in a nutshell. Yeah. What do you so? What do you think the role of emergency management, or emergency managers are in that process, and how do we get us in front of the those that are the, the policymakers that are going to really make what we do, uh, you know, system wide. There are, there's so many microcosms of, of emergency managers and, and, and what we are and, and, and what we do. But fundamentally, uh, emergency management is about coordination. In most jurisdictions, emergency managers have no authority or very, very little authority. Um, yet we've seen time and time again that when there's a disaster and the emergency manager walks into the room, they walk into the EOC, people will shut up, sit down and actually listen because they know that that's how we live our lives. That's that's the 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 world that 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 we live in, uh, even absent a, a disaster happening. And so I think exactly what you said, Todd, that planning process, uh, you know, CPG 101 is is many, many years old. Uh, and there's actually an update coming out very shortly from FEMA on it. They've they've gone through a couple of, of draft iterations. CPG 101 is good. That six-step planning process is solid. And, and the first step to it is form a planning team. And like you said, so many times we see, uh, you know, an emergency manager is, is in their office and they're typing away. They're making a plan that no one else has ever seen. Uh, no one had input to. And, uh, you know, sure, you got to start somewhere and you always need someone to actually do that work of, of typing it up. But you got to have that involvement from the get-go. There has to be a, a good understanding. Step two in, in, in CPG 101 in that planning process is understand the situation. You can't have a good understanding of the situation without bringing different perspectives to the table. So whatever the plan is about, you got to bring those people in. And we, you got to think about that whole, uh, that whole community aspect of, of it. And it may not just be the people in your jurisdiction. It could be your neighbors. It could be the, the higher level jurisdiction. You could be looking at business and industry, nonprofits, even, you know, some citizens. 
you know, who, who have special interests in, in certain things and getting their thoughts, getting their feedback, getting their interests. Um, and, and all that helps that, that shared perspective really helps to clarify a lot of things. Absolutely. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, I want to ask you this one question or think about it over the break. What is an emergency manager? Power outages can happen at any time. Is your community prepared? The Power Up Solar Power Charging Trailer can be used to address the need for temporary power for your community. In addition, the Power Up Solar Power Charging Trailer can provide a platform to support your public information and community resiliency outreach efforts throughout the year to educate and inform people about the need to always be ready. For more information, visit PowerUpConnect.com. That is PowerUpConnect.com. Have you ever wanted to work in a flying ICU? Or maybe you're just passionate about saving lives. Right now, you can realize your dream by applying to work for one of the best teams in the air medical industry. Air Methods is currently hiring qualified flight nurses, medics, and mechanics to join our air medical team. Check out our new salary and benefits packages. Visit airmethods.com careers and apply today. That's airmethods.com careers. The Outer Limit Supply Company was founded on the idea of providing high-quality first aid kits. Their goal is to supply the life-saving equipment you'll need to mitigate the majority of injuries often seen during austere times. From minor injury on an outdoor adventure with your family to your team responding to a major traumatic event, Outer Limit Supply has the kits to manage most situations, providing practical, user-friendly first aid kits that anyone can use. Enter EM Weekly, all capitals, at checkout and save 20% off your total purchase. Go to www.outerlimitsupply.com today. That's outerlimitsupply.com. Hey, welcome back for the quick break. Thank you so much. And the question I asked before we went into break was, uh, what is emergency management? But before I get into that, I want to address some of the comments that are made because there's some really good information out here. And so Robert Whitnam says, um, I worry that there's a ment um, mentality that ICS 300 and 400 are terminal training needed for incident response and coordination mm -hmm. uh, in some organizations. And I, I, I think that's true. That's like the PhD in ICS or something. And, and people don't want to do any more training after that. But I think that's that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, you know, going off of that too is, um, because remember that I, Dr. Uh, Bonnet says, uh, remember the ICS is a system. It's a tool. Uh, to manage the incident, but no matter um, how good the system is, uh, the person will have to have to uh, you know have those uh, little fail right if you don't if you don't do it properly. You know, I mean, and again, back to Craig Fugate. I mean, he he definitely is not an ICS purist. Uh, he he says that there's other ways of doing things outside of ICS, and I know sometimes that gets him uh, you know put him into the uh, bad boy chair every once in a while. But I kind of agree with it. So that being said, Daniel and I. Um, had a, we keep having this conversation about what is an emergency manager and kind of going in with this planning, training, incident commands, you know, all the stuff that's going on. Um, what is you, Tim, what is an incident manager or an incident manager, an emergency manager? You know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's soup is, is what it fundamentally is. You know, you, you, you're not making soup with just simply one ingredient, or if you are, that's really boring and bland and tasteless. Um, 
and, and I think we have to look at it from different perspectives. You have a small jurisdiction who has one emergency manager. And even if they are a full-time employee, sometimes they're wearing multiple hats. They're a fire coordinator. They're an EMS coordinator. They're a 911 coordinator, et cetera, et cetera, which is actually in many ways part of emergency management, but still you know, not able to really focus a lot on the emergency management skills. Larger jurisdictions, uh, you know, larger counties, states are going to have dozens, sometimes even hundreds of people. And I think it's valuable to look in, to look at how they're organized. And a lot of them will organize in kind of the, the traditional four phases of, of, of emergency management. So you'll have your preparedness people and your response people and your, your recovery people and your mitigation people. But then let's really break down what those people are doing and, and, and what what it is that they're doing and how they're accomplishing these things. You have people who are doing like accounting and grants management. You have people who are doing procurement and logistics. You have people who are doing GIS. You have people who are doing data analysis. You have engineers. Um, you have, you know, organizational management. Uh, emergency managers, any good emergency manager uh, should be an advisor or a consultant to their bosses, to the the, the chief elected officials on these things. So there are so many things that go on in emergency management, um, including the sciences as well. You know, having knowledge of geology and meteorology and that kind of stuff. Not to say you have to be an expert, but it certainly helps. Um, and fundamentally, I'm a big believer that the vast majority of emergency management is really um, it, it's a social thing. So having some understanding of sociology and anthropology is 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 really important. Um, you have to know about communities and people and cultures, uh, and, and that's really important to the things that we do. So an emergency management is just an, an emergency manager is really this amalgamation of so many different things. Uh, and obviously, some people are more skilled with, with things than others. And if you're in a larger organization and maybe, you know, doing mitigation is, is what you do. You don't do other things. Still an emergency manager. Um, Someone who uh, does GIS, if you know they're doing it for emergency management, hey, they're an emergency manager. So it's it's there's a lot of like emergency management police out there. I think who are like, well, if you don't have your your SUV with lights on it and and sirens and you know the reflective strip on the side that says emergency management, you're not an emergency manager. And it's this it's this persistent uh, response mindset that a lot of the culture is still in because of that influence of especially the fire service. Um, but even also, you know, other, um, other first responders and that kind of stuff that the thing that the focal point that we think of is when there's something really big that happens, we have to get there. Well, I mean, I, I agree with, with a lot of what you said. Um, I, I, I have, um, opposite opinion on some of it. And one of that being, there is a difference between an emergency manager and an emergency management professional. Sure. And just because sure. someone works as an accountant or works as GIS, or they may touch emergency management and they may have applications in emergency management that does not necessarily make them emergency manager. Yeah, but uh, but uh, but uh, there is an aspect and that's, and that's a question that keeps coming up and I keep having conversations and it's one that I'm broaching in a, in a topic coming up um, uh, in a couple of weeks is what, what, what is it, what makes the difference between an emergency manager and an emergency management professional? Because there is, there is a difference there. And I think yeah. there's a big misconception, as you pointed out, uh, that, you know, if you don't have lights and sirens and you're not an emergency manager, well, in, in, in all, you know, all due respect, emergency managers don't, shouldn't have lights and sirens. They're not first responders. Yeah. 
I agree. They're secondary tertiary responders. And so we, and, and we got to get out of that mindset and, yeah. but we're still in it because we were built on that foundation of response. And I think, you know, ultimately to return back to our conversation though on ICS um, and the, the conversation that leads to what is an emergency manager and emergency manager professional is how can we be more forward thinking in how we continue to build this, this profession and educate those that we work for that we represent and that we serve what it is that we do and why it's important that we do it. Agreed. So my question to you would be, in your opinion, how do we move forward? How do we, how do we continue to forward think as a profession? Oh gosh. Um, well, I, I, I think that simply a lot of it is, uh, I, I think a big part of it is 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 something that uh, further frustrates frustrates me with a lot of the culture of of, of emergency management, and that is uh, a lot of complacency that we have that we simply accept things as they are, and it's part of of kind of what we talked about before that you know hey the way we've done things is 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 fine there's nothing wrong with it so why change. Um, we seem to be a lot of emergency managers or people in the emergency management profession seem to be so less inclined to actually really look at and analyze and uh, critique and think critically about a lot of things. And, and certainly I'll admit, Hey, again, that, you know, one person uh, emergency management shop, they may not have the time simply to read through some new FEMA doctrine or some report and, you know, actually pour through it with, with, you know, a lot of, of, of critique or, or, or thought on it because they are the one person who's holding their entire community together in terms of emergency management. But more broadly, simply as a practice, I think we need to stop accepting the things that are just simply put in front of us. Yeah. Um, we, we need to think about the purpose behind things. Um, and, and I, I, I will pick on FEMA a bit with this and FEMA knows that I've written about this many times and I've actually gotten a lot of agreement from folks in FEMA. Uh, we look at like their annual uh, uh, national preparedness report. They put it out every year. It's, I don't know, 30 or 40 pages. It's pretty much a summation of the state preparedness reports, which is a little bit of narrative added to their thyra. So it's just tables and tables of information with a whole bunch of numbers of, you know, yes, we do this really well, or, or, you know, this is a gap and they give us, they hand us that report and yeah, there's some little vignettes in there and Hey, here's a, a success story in this from this part of the country or a success story in that I've been reading this, these reports for years and the reports are meaningless. They truly are because they, they, these reports are written to exist in a vacuum. And it's okay. This year's numbers are fine. As emergency managers, we need to look at trends. We need to be able to analyze numbers. We need to be able to examine things. Taking a snapshot in time only has so much value. We need to look at the big picture of things. If we were able to see if, if you know, the next national preparedness report that they put out says, hey, that guy, Tim, was right. I don't even need to take credit for it. It can be Todd. It can be Dan. I don't care. Somebody. Uh, and, and they actually give us, hey, look, here's a timeline. Here's trend lines of each of the core capabilities uh, nationally, regionally, states, that kind of stuff. 
and they can pick that stuff apart and actually tell us uh, what's meaningful about it and give us some analysis in that document too, instead of just throwing numbers at us. Um, and and, and a, it, it's a shame that for years we have simply accepted, here's a 30 page document with a bunch of numbers. Do what you will with it. Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. And you make some great points. And uh, to kind of wrap up, and I'll t- you know turn it back over to Todd, but to wrap up 100% on thinking forward and to touch back on some um, things that we've said throughout this you know conversation is there's not enough of that uh, engagement. We get complacent. We get uh, versus you know continual engagement. We don't have and a lot for what you know what I do as organization is getting stuff on the calendar and con- constantly to mm-hmm. remind me and to keep me motivated, keep me looking forward versus getting complacent. And, you know, I say this all the time. We, we If you get complacent, bad things happen. So yeah. ultimately we got to continue moving forward. And that's how we move forward. And we got to treat these plans and treat these trainings and treat these, these uh, exercises as a living documentation that doesn't just mm-hmm. one and done and put on the shelf as I read in one of the comments, it's not one and done. It's a, it's their living documentations and their living uh, projects that you continually have to revisit, continually have to update and to continue to move forward. You can't say one and done, put it on the shelf because it, it, there's things change all the time. And if COVID has taught us anything is, is that this year is that we can never think day to day that it's not going to, it's going to stay the same. It's changed yeah. so often and it's also so, so revolutionary. It just continually goes in circles. So yeah. we have to be doing that as well and we have to be engaged. And I think a lot of that goes to the individual and the job. If they're not, if they're not engaged and if they're not, letting everybody see the value that that position carries forward. We get complacent and bad things happen. Todd. If, if, if I can bring up one more thing, um, a big part of that is, uh, is after action reports, not only one in how they're written. Um, we, you know, and, and we've seen this get better over time, but after action reports need to be very, very honest uh, in, 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 you know, what those assessments are. But then we also need to really follow up on them. And I think that there are some things, again, yes, yeah, some places will do very well with this and they will follow up and they'll they'll create their their uh, um, corrective action plans, which sometimes will go back years with multiple uh, uh, items in there from multiple after action reports, because some of these are really long term projects. They involve maybe millions of dollars or, or, or whatever. Um, but there are also some things which are just wildly inexcusable. It is, it's, it's, it's laughable. It's, it's a constant example that we have in, in, in emergency management that nine out of 10 after action reports will mention a failure of communications. Always. And oh. usually in, you know, the, the, the top three issues. Why? Decades, decades, people. Why in the world are we still stuck on that? Why is this not fixed? Um, people think, and the problem is most people think, oh, well, it's a, it's a technology issue. Fundamentally communication is not a technology issue. It's a people issue. And it's because you have people who either don't know how to use stuff. They're not willing to use stuff. They're not willing to communicate. Um, they're not doing the job properly. So we need to take a look at that. Uh, but yeah, just, just more broadly in ARs, ARs get published. And again, they get filed away. They get stuck on a shelf. You know, something ends up in Dan's Dan's uh, Dan's shelf. I'm really concerned that it's just gone um, <laughs> forever. But you know, these things end up someplace, and you know, yeah, someone will look at it right afterwards. But then they're not looking at it six months from from now, a year from now. They're not following up on it. They should have jurisdiction. Should have 
just like they're putting together people for planning or people to develop exercises, they should have people, and maybe it's the same group of people, uh, who are constantly reviewing corrective action plans and looking at these things in a timeline and saying, okay, what's our priority for the next six months? What are we going to fix? What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And it's also not even just your AARs. I'm in central New York. Something happens out where you guys are in California. I want to read about it. Why? Because the lessons that you learned are probably lessons I should be learning too. Absolutely. You know, everybody, we could talk about this for a long time. And there's some really great comments. If you guys are listening to this and not, not, I'm not watching it on LinkedIn, go to LinkedIn, look at the comments that are there. There's a bunch of them. I wish I could uh, pull more of them up. Um, but the you know, one of the couple of things here is that I like this one here. We'll talk about what an emergency manager is. Is uh, Gabriel says, generalists with, with specializations, like many other professions do, it's a great model. Absolutely. Uh, but I think so, what we do have to do to find what our, what a generalist is necessarily as an emergency manager. Uh, that being said, lots of conversations going on there. And yes, at the end of the day, we have to really take a look at our system, revamp what we're doing. Tim, your, your stuff that you're writing in your blog is, is outstanding. Everybody go take a look at it. It's in the links below. And hey, remember, follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, uh, your favorite podcast player. Subscribe, share everybody with the work we're doing over here. Thank you so much, everybody, for being with us today, this morning. And stay safe, stay hydrated.